Quick disclaimer, all information, content, and material of this podcast are the opinions of the speakers and is for the informational purpose only and not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified healthcare provider. Welcome to the Untethered Podcast. I am your host, Hallie Balkin. I'm a certified orofacial myologist, feeding specialist, and mentor. This podcast is all about getting your questions answered and collaborating with colleagues to bring you the most up-to-date information in the orofacial myofunctional therapy, tethered oral tissue, and airway space. I challenge you to keep an open mind and join my mission to get this information out to the masses. Let's get started. Hi, and welcome to episode 48 of the Untethered Podcast. Today, we are continuing our conversation with Patrick McEwen, so be sure to go back and listen to episode 47 before listening to this episode. Do you have any opinions on like the long-term, I guess the impacts of long-term mouth breathing on dental health, um, especially as it relates to, you know, infants and and toddlers? I know we talked about... um, you mentioned osteopathic care was highly recommended for these infants so that we can start to shape the palate gently. Um, and then going into something like an ALF to shape the palate yes. as well, like I've done with my daughter. <clears throat> you know, do you have any other, any tips or thoughts on that as far as mouth breathing? You know, I get a lot of infants um, that do mouth breathe. And so we're gently guiding those lips closed as long as we feel like baby can maintain that and we don't feel there is a true obstruction, but obviously without an instrumental assessment, we don't always know that. Um, So any thoughts on that and like the infant or toddler population? Yeah, it's, it's, we're, we are limited. I'm limited in terms of teaching toddlers. Um, The reason being is because the exercises would require some cognitive ability to be able to understand them and to apply them. You know, we've always kind of spoken about that book that was written back in the 1870s it's called shut your mouth and save your life by an american painter called george caitlin and the practice of when the the native american indian mother when they seen the child with the mouth open they would gently press the child's lips together i think there's going to be an observation from the point of view of the parent but i really feel that a healthcare professional who is able to and even to show the techniques to the parent you know, that the, the sutras haven't formed, that the maxilla is still pliable, that, you know, if, you, if the fingers are put in, into the, into the mouth, and just gently, if using, of course, you know, hygienic practices and gloves, that gentle light pressure applied to the jaws for 10 seconds or so, and then released, helping to guide the child to breathe through the nose. Um, chewing could be something that's really important here. Mm-hmm. Um, and those practices which are helping to develop the, the muscles of the face necessary for craniofacial development. Breastfeeding, of course, is going to be a big one. Um, recognizing tongue tie is a huge one. Yeah. So there's practices outside of my field. Typically, when we see kids, we see them at about four years of age. And with, with young girls, if they're a little bit bright, yeah, we can start working with them from a, from a younger age. But I always teach with small groups. I find there's a better compliance. And there's also a better management in terms of the instructor's time. Children are used to a classroom environment. And if you have five or six kids together, you have five or six parents together. Parents are exchanging information, but the children also realize that they are not the only ones that have to do the exercises. That there is a group, there is a group support and motivation there, especially when children are coming back the next week and the next week and the next week. So we typically will, you know, 
I think I would say to anybody is to typically bring kids in for about four sessions or five sessions for about an hour each, you know, an hour each session, but they're small group workshops. Now we put all the videos up online anyway. The videos are free online. So if any of your instructors wanted to see how do we teach the kids, um, go to butecoclinic.com forward slash butecochildren. And you will see seven or eight different videos there. It's the entire children's program. So it will give you an insight into what do we do. Now we use the myotape. We use it during their exercise as well because we want a child to breathe through the nose. Um, but I think, as you say, it's, it's tremendous that there are healthcare professionals that are really understanding this. What's the long-term outcome if children are allowed to persistently mouth breathe? It's terrible. Yeah. And it's really these kids, forward head posture, which will tend to stay for the rest of the child's life, sleep problems, anxiety, their cognitive ability. Yeah, it's bad enough for an adult having their mouth open and having disrupted sleep. They can't concentrate the next day, but the child's brain is developing. Yeah. And if you look, I think one of the statistics put out there was, if a child has sleep disorder breathing by age eight and untreated, the child has an 80% chance that they will have a permanent 20% reduction in their mental capacity. If yeah. you look at the, the incidence of children in the United States, a figure that, was, that I came across was one in 10 children are now experiencing um, ADD, ADHD, um, special education needs, and they're also on different spectrums. Like one in 10 children, like where and when has that ever happened before? What's happening with, these, with the new generations? And I think it's, it's a combination of environment and genetics. And yeah, yeah, I get it. And I get, I understand that, you know, doctors want to find out and to know about science. And the whole debate in, in dentistry to some degree was, well, until we can absolutely define mouth breathing, you know, like, and also there's a few questions that remain unanswered. And because these questions are not, have not been answered, it seems to have slowed down progress. And these questions, some of them are as follows. At what time or what age does a child have to experience nasal congestion for it to cause an issue in terms of craniofacial development? At what age? We don't know that answer. How long should the child or how long does the child have to present with oral breathing or mouth breathing before it creates a problem? We don't know that answer. Um, what degree of nasal obstruction is necessary in order to cause mouth breathing? Again, we don't know that answer. Mm -hmm. So there's questions that we don't know. And how do you assess mouth breathing in a child? Well, how do I assess it? Well, children come in to me. I look at the child for a few minutes. And does the child sit there with their mouth hanging open as they sit in front of me? And, you know, it's not rocket science. Yeah. But sometimes in our quest to have everything absolutely perfectly laid out we have to go and we have to use common sense with this one and i've seen it in conferences whereby i have seen medical doctors get up and say it literally makes no difference if you breathe through your mouth or if you breathe through your nose and unfortunately that belief is often out there but for somebody to say that i would say to them go and look at any medical physiological physiology textbook look at the functions of the mouth 
do you see breathing listed as any function of the mouth? Because breathing is not a function of the mouth. The primary and physiological mode of breathing in a human being, regardless of age, is through the nose. Our ancestors did it. Mouth breathing is a relatively recent phenomena. No, no animal is doing it with the exception of a dog and sick animals. And maybe we should be looking to nature because they have an intelligence that's often greater than what we are often using. Yeah. And I think for those who are listening, who are going, well, how do I assess for this? And they're stop overthinking it. <laughs> but yes. I mean, what I do in my assessments, my myofunctional or anytime I get a child in here for feeding and, and quite honestly, if I'm assessing for speech or language, because like we're talking about, uh, you know, there could be a high uh, correlation between children who are having sleep issues and those who present as having attention issues or anxiety yes. or, you know, the ADHD. Um, I'm always asking, well, first of all, like you said, I just look when they walk in from the second they walk in the door, I am looking to see what is that mouth doing? Is the mouth hinged open? How far open is it? Is it open like three millimeters and they're usually closing it? Or does it look like it's hanging open like 10 millimeters? And once you see enough kids, you can pretty much gauge that with your own eyes um, without taking an actual measurement. Um, you know, and I find a lot of my kiddos are in that eight to 10 millimeter range when they come into me with a myofunctional disorder. Um, yes. not all of them, but a pretty high amount of them, you know, and, and I ask them questions. I'll say, okay, you know, I want you just to take it, just tell me while you're breathing right now, where do you feel like you're breathing from? Do you feel like it's down deep in your belly or do you feel like it's up here in your shoulders and, yes. um, or your chest and, and half of them say, I don't know. Cause they're really not, it, they have no yeah, clue, but yeah, you'd be yeah. surprised because sometimes they do tell you, oh, well, I feel it all up here. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, you know, and so, and then I watch them as they sit there and I watch to see, you know, from the chest and the belly, what do I see? Is it in line with yes. what they're telling me? Um, so those are some of the markers that I immediately look for in my own assessments. But you know, oftentimes I'll also have parents say, no, they don't snore. No, they don't. Their mouth isn't open when they're breathing. And then we go through a whole assessment, and I'm like, I need you to check over the yes. next three yes. nights and report yeah. back to me because yeah. I'm not convinced that they're not mouth breathing. Or you know, even if you're not hearing them, it's not audible. I'm still not convinced that they're not breathing through their mouth when they're sleeping. Yeah. The way they present in my office is very different than what you're telling me you're seeing at home. So I think that we also have a job as practitioners to read between the lines, not take everything at face value and really trust our judgment because sometimes we may pick up on these things when, you know, a parent is not trained to do that or they're not even aware prior to coming in. And half my parents will say, I have no clue. I don't know if they have an open mouth when they're, you know, watching TV or doing our homework or whatever. Um, so I think that's a really great point. There isn't really a scale for, I mean, yes, we can use sleep study, you sleep scales and different, like the bears for kids. And, you know, there's different versions of sleep scales, um, to help get at some of this information, but it's not so cut and dry. It's more yes, about but what you even see. the sleep, you know, any of the questionnaires, it's, you're really getting it from a subjective point of view. And I've seen people even do the adults complete the Eckbert sleep scale. Yeah. You know, do you fall asleep while watching TV? No. Uh, and I know well that the individual is because I've seen family members. They've filled out the sleep scale. No, 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 no. Everything is no. And I've seen the guy is falling asleep in front of me and he's having apnea sitting in front of me. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so yeah. yeah, I think there's always a difficulty filling out forms. Yeah. And we had a question from um, one of our listeners who was asking, you know, how do you discuss this with parents? How do you get them on board in terms of, you know, sharing the importance of airway, because if this is brand new to a parent, we're throwing all this information at them, 
you know, how do we get them to seek additional help or even just get on board with what we're recommending? Um, you know, yes. I guess to address things like ADHD and poor sleep habits and, you know, what are your thoughts on that? I think it's really important that we have to realize that sometimes the information we're saying to parents, it's the first time that they've heard it. And sometimes they're thinking, well, if this information is so vital and so important, why haven't I heard this before? So why I have often, the other thing that I have to take into consideration is that as parents, we can be very defensive about if anybody is saying that our kid isn't developing the way the child should be developing. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> I often give my own example and say when I was in school, and this is where a group workshop works better because if I'm working with say five or six kids or seven kids, I can talk about this on a whiteboard and I can talk about the possible, the possible connections between mouth breathing and how it impacts sleep, how it impacts academics, how it can contribute to bad breath, how it can dry out and cause trauma to the upper airways, which in turn is going to cause inflammation. I get the parents to look down at their chest and I say, okay, take a breath in through your mouth and tell me what part of the body moves. And they say, okay, well, mouth breathing is causing my chest to move more than the lower regions. I get the parents to slow down their breathing so that they can feel an improvement to their blood circulation. Because oftentimes breathing pattern disorders in adults culminate in cold hands. So the parent knows that they have a cold hands, they have cold hands, and I want to show them the physiological connection between it. But in a group setting, you're not targeting one individual. You're putting the information out there in a general way. So people are hearing the information. They're not going to get as defensive. Now, they may not believe me. I'm one person. So what we did was I put an article up on butecoclinic.com. And the article is <clears throat> butecoclinic.com forward slash crooked teeth. And with that, I included maybe 25 or 30 references. And I looked at the connection between mouth breathing and academic achievement sleep, speech, um, sports, craniofacial development. I think there's asthma brought in. So what I tried to do is I tried to, to write an article, to put out an article there, allow parents to do their own research. And on the right-hand side of that p- paper, that crooked teeth crooked page, I have videos. Dr. Bill Hang is there. Righttogrow.org is a great video that's out there. Dr. John Mew's Channel 4 documentary is there. Um, there's other doc- videos on YouTube that I put connections there to. And I think it's really important that parents are educated and that parents, if they feel there's a connection, but I'll hand them the information and I'll say, go read this. This is really worth And there's some tremendous papers now coming out. I'll send you one, in, one after this. And uh, it's, it's pointing to the effect and it's literally pinpointing exactly what we are saying. But we too need to realize that parents don't have the time. Parents aren't often aware of these issues and parents aren't aware of the connection between mouth breathing and how it can impact their child's development. And I would say in the group, I'd say no child who is persistently breathing through an open mouth is going to reach their full potential. And I can use my own experience to draw on that. And I will give the example that for me to study 10 hours studying to try and take in information. And you literally spend your entire teenage years trying to stay ahead or to keep pace. And the reason being is because a child who is tired 
cannot focus, don't have the concentration, and of course they are going to get frustrated in school. You know, like we 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 are asking children. We well, first of all, we are measuring their academic their academic ability. We are telling these kids in the school system, are those children intelligent based on what they score in exams? But yet we are not asking, are these children mouth breathing or nose breathing? And mouth breathing is definitely, like I see in one paper, that if you are mouth breathing causing sleep disorder breathing, you have 10 times the risk of learning difficulties. This is not just once or twice. So when I'm talking with the parents, I think this is where the podcasts come in and this is where the books come in. And, you know, part of my reason putting the chapter on craniofacial development into the oxygen advantage. And by the way, there is resistance. <clears throat> I, um, I don't know, was it the American version of the book or the English version, but the publishers contacted me and they says, we can't include this chapter in the book. It was on craniofacial development. Mm-hmm. And I said, why can't you include it? And they said, because the reader will get upset. But I said, this is not for the reader. I said, this is for the reader's children. And in Japan, it was the same. The Japanese version too got an email saying this doesn't apply to Japanese children. But I was able then to send them on some papers that yes, it does apply to Japanese kids and we got it published. But I think in the English version of the book, um, the publisher put the chapter on craniofacial development into the appendix. So it's delicate enough information. And of course, when we're working with teenagers, I have to be very careful that if a young girl or a boy is coming in I'm talking about looking intelligence, but I'm also talking about improved sports performance. If I, especially if I see them, if they're wearing trainers, if they have a tracksuit on, I say, listen, if you're going around with your mouth open during the day, you're, you're going to gas out too soon. <clears throat> you're going to be running out of air on a football field or whatever, whatever sports you do. Because if your breathing is not, if it's not optimal during rest, it's certainly not going to be optimal during physical exercise. And that will manifest as disproportionate breathlessness during physical exercise. And I say, you want to be fast, you want to run, you want to do all of these sports, well, we have to fix your breathing. And I say, this is part of your physical training. Your, your coach trains you to make you to be able to run better. And we're now going to bring, bring in breathing. And we take in the oxygen advantage because the oxygen advantage is very much, it's elite sports people in the main who are doing it. You know, we have, like, for example, here's our manual for the instructor training. So an MMA Bellator fighter is is the cover photo, one of our instructors. And we've also people like Special Weapons and Tactics, um, some of their members putting it into practice, military putting it into practice, firefighters putting it into practice. Why would they do it? Well, sleep, focus, concentration, and physical performance is key components of what they need. And I use this to motivate the kids. We have Olympic athletes putting it into practice. And, you know, it's kind of like, I want to bring it to a level that the children are going to embrace it themselves. And again, with the, like I can talk about bad breath when you have a group of kids, because the kids aren't going to think that you're pinpointing any one child directly, that you're putting the information out there. But at the same time, they're listening. Yeah, now that's great. And I'm, as you're saying this, I'm, I'm thinking of all the myself because I was diagnosed with ADHD in college. So that was, you know, a whole 
work up to that point. Um, but I've had, I've had teens. I had one who was a swimmer who ended up having to quit swimming because we, they learned that she had obstructive sleep apnea and, you know, it, it just, we go through all these different, um, so many specialists the child had been to and nobody had ever looked at sleep until they sat in front of me and we talked about everything that I saw going on. And that was basically the answer. We need to work on airway. We need to work on sleep and we need, you know, and so, but I get a lot of teens like this where I think that's a great point um, for these kids, especially who are involved in sports. And, you know, if you can talk about their passion and how it's impacting them, I've had gymnasts where we've talked about, well, you have tethered oral tissues and a restricted airway. And with both of these (laughs) restricting your function, you're not going to be the best gymnast you can be. It's just not, it's not possible until we address these underlying issues. So I think that's a really, really great, um, great point. And do you, I love that you have that, um, the crooked teeth reference that you had mentioned. Um, We'll definitely link to that in the show notes. Do you also use that for ENTs or other professionals or do you have other resources that you share with other professionals? Um, The, it's funny, like I, I gave a talk to, to ear, nose and throat doctors in Madrid in t- last year and there were 150 ear, nose and throat doctors and they had to divide them into two groups. So 75 came to me on the first day and 75 came to me on the second day. On the first day with ear, nose and throat doctors, I tied in breathing re-education for post-surgery <clears throat> and I was talking about the follow-up there but also I brought in the phenotypes of sleep apnea. And on the second day, I didn't really give them so much science, but I gave them the practical exercise, opening up the nose, slowing down their breathing to feel warmer. But the feedback came back. The ENTs from the second day who had experienced the practical exercises, that the feedback was more positive than the science alone. Hmm. So sometimes it's, it's a case of putting the exercise out there. And I've, I still do the same if I'm teaching with healthcare professionals. If I'm giving, say, a, a talk at some conference, I'll actually get people to experience it because I can talk about it. But people often experience, they think breathing is breathing and breathing is absolutely not breathing. There's a lot of misinformation out there about breathing. And there's a lot of people that are honing in on one perspective of breathing. Like they're teaching diaphragmatic breathing, for example, which is fine. However, you're not going to restore diaphragmatic breathing unless you restore nasal breathing. Mm. And all too often, some modalities, restoring diaphragmatic breathing is, is what the aim of the therapist is, but the therapist is saying nothing about nasal breathing. The therapist is saying nothing about nasal breathing during sleep. You know, as individuals, we know that if you're over 40 years of age, you're six times more likely to spend at least 50% of your sleep time breathing through an open mouth. And that's one aspect of it. And the other aspect is that we can't just emphasize on diaphragmatic breathing without considering the biochemistry of the breath. So oftentimes in yoga, um, I asked the, the person coming into me and I say, well, do you hear the breathing of the individual inside in a yoga studio? Yeah, everybody, because they're taking these full big breaths, more air, the better, you know, this kind of thing. I say, you shouldn't hear anybody breathe inside a yoga studio because the emphasis is that with breathing, we are, we've always been kind of stuck in our own little silos. With Buteco, it was all about biochemistry. <laughs> and not enough, hello, not enough about the biomechanics. With yoga, maybe Pilates, it's looking at the biomechanics, but not necessarily taking into consideration the biochemistry. 
with heart heart rate variability practitioners, they're looking at cadence, but they're not looking at the biomechanics and not looking at the biochemistry. And what I want to do is to tie all three together, that we can't just look at one in isolation. So in terms of the phenotypes, I put presentations together and I put them up on YouTube. So their video is half an hour long. And I put in the connection between breathing re-education and PCRIT. Um, and here's to give you an example. We know as we get older and we put a little bit more weight on, especially with males, you know, we're putting a bit of weight on our belly. We hit 40 and we start to put weight on the torso. We know there's an association between obesity and the worsening of the AHI index. And by the way, I'd like to talk about the AHI index as well. Yeah. But we have to consider, we put on weight. Yes, we have fat deposits on the tongue. That encroaches the airway. We also have fat pads on the throat, and that is making the airway more narrower. But we don't consider that we're also putting fat on our belly. When we put fat on the belly, it impinges diaphragmatic movement. If we are breathing using the upper chest, there's a reduction to lung volume, and the throat is more liable to collapse. So when we are teaching breathing, we have to consider that the entire airway is one airway. The nose, the throat, the trachea, the bronchi, the bronchioles, the diaphragm, it's all one airway. And if there is a problem in one part of the airway, there's also a problem in the other. If we are not using our diaphragm by breathing low down into the lower regions of the lungs, if you breathe low, it increases lung volume. And when you increase lung volume, there's a stiffening of the throat. Now, bear, in this, bear this in mind. How many people fall asleep, mouth breathing, fast breathing, shallow breathing? There's a reduction to lung volume. There's, the throat is more likely to collapse. Mouth breathing is drying out the upper airway. This is causing inflammation, which is reducing airway size. The tongue is not able to remain up in the palate when the mouth is open because, of course, the tongue has to drop to allow air to flow into the lungs. Mouth breathing is fast breathing. This is increasing the negative pressure created during breathing. This in turn is causing increased turbulence. The lower jaw is falling back into the airway. So why, why is it not that everybody who is at risk of obstructive sleep apnea, the first thing is teach them nose breathing, tongue in the correct resting posture, myofunctional therapy, but also change your breathing patterns to, from a biochemical point of view, a biomechanical point of view. Um, I think it's really, really important. Now, I'm going to briefly touch on the AHI index for your adult population. The AHI index is falling short in a number of key areas. Number one, your bundling apneas and the hypopneas together as a measurement. But an apnea and a hypopneas, they're different in their biological effects. An apnea is where there's a total cessation to breathing. And a hypopnea, when there's a reduction to the flow of breathing, enough to cause a, a, a drop to your blood oxygen saturation by 3 to 4%. An apnea and a hypopnea are different, but yet they are bundled together. That's the first point. The second point is, an apnea is when there's, a, for an adult, a cessation in breathing for at least 10 seconds or more. So you could have one individual who stops breathing for 10 seconds. That's an, an apnea. But you could have another individual who stops breathing for 90 seconds. It's still an apnea, still one apnea. So the apnea, when you consider the AHI index, we have to be considering for how long is this individual stopping breathing for? 
hypoxia, you could have one individual, their blood oxygen saturation is dropping by three, four percent, or you could have another individual, their blood oxygen saturation is dropping by six, seven, eight, nine, ten percent. Another factor is the clustering of events. You could have one individual, they have a lot of their events in a certain time frame during their sleep, but they're getting a few hours of decent sleep. Or you have another individual, their events are distributed throughout the night and they're getting no quality sleep for a prolonged period of time. And another aspect, we can't either rely on the blood oxygen saturation in the AHI index, because if you look at the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve, when you stop breathing, yes, it is true that your blood oxygen saturation is dropping, but at the same time, carbon dioxide increases. Now, as carbon dioxide increases, it causes a right shift of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve, and this in turn is going to cause a drop in the SpO2. So when we see the SpO2 decrease or the SaO2 decrease, we have to consider what effect has the hypercapnic response had here? Because when carbon dioxide increases, it's allowing increased blood flow to the brain. When you stop breathing, it doesn't mean that your brain is necessarily getting reduced blood flow. If I held my breath for a long period of time, Yes, I can lower my blood oxygen saturation because we do it with athletes. You know, we purposely drop it. But as your blood oxygen saturation is dropping, carbon dioxide is increasing, and carbon dioxide is causing hemoglobin to release more oxygen to the tissues. But also as your carbon dioxide is increasing, the blood flow to the brain is dilating. So the brain is still. So it's almost that carbon dioxide is in some way compensating for the hypoxic effect happening during obstructive sleep apnea. So I think I would love to see breathing getting some research in OSA. It has not happened. Um, loop gain is one paper, but it's not just about looking at loop gain. Like think of nitric oxide, first identified in the human nasal airway in 1991. And that's a signaling mo molecule to the upper airway dilator muscles. And only by breathing through your nose are you going to harness nasal nitric oxide. So if we're talking about the recruitment of the upper airway dilator muscles, which of course myofunctional therapy is doing, well, that's going to go hand in hand with nasal breathing because nasal breathing and regular breathing patterns, you know, the brain is sending messages to the upper airway dilator muscles. <clears throat> and those messages are influenced by nitric oxide and by carbon dioxide. Yeah, this is... Uh... This is all very fascinating. So, you know, I think a lot of us myofunctional therapists have been trained, well, refer your patients for sleep studies. Um, and one thing that I know from speaking with another colleague on the podcast was oftentimes, at least the way that it's done here in the US, uh, one night sleep study is also not going to give us a true picture as to what might be going on based on what happened that day. But did they have a glass of wine? Did they go to the gym? Did they, you know, there's so many factors that play yes. into the results of a one night sleep study. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that actually has made me pull back a little bit from referring unless I feel there's absolutely obstructive sleep apnea in place and we need to yeah. shake things up a bit faster for a patient. Um, because I, from my understanding, like a three night sleep study would be a much better indicator of what's actually going yes. on so we could average yeah. together. So do you recommend that people go for sleep studies or do you just kind of jump right on in and start working on the breathing if you don't feel like there's anything anatomical obstructing the airway? Yeah. Like when I'm working with a, a client comes in and they have obstructive sleep apnea, if they're on a CPAP machine, I can't of course tell them to stop it. Now, 
sometimes clients will stop using it. They stop it off their own bat. But what I say to them is, I want to get your, your control pause measurement up to 25 seconds. <clears throat> and I want to establish good functional breathing patterns. And then I would like you to go back and do a sleep study and to see what change is happening in the AHI index. But when you do the sleep study, I would like you to slow down your breathing for about 15 minutes before the sleep, before sleep. And I also need you to tape your mouth during the sleep study. So I will only tell, because I have the person when they're at home, I want them putting this into practice. I want them then to continue with, with those recommendations into the sleep study, because I want to see what impact are we having on the AHI index as a result of putting in breathing intervention. And that's why, like, it doesn't make sense for me. You could, have an, you could have an individual go do a sleep study on a Monday and they could sleep on their back with their mouth wide open and their tongue is falling into the throat and they're, they've had, they're nervous about the sleep study and this is contributing to insomnia and they have arousal threshold. And, you know, you could have that same individual go in on the Tuesday with slow breathing, nose breathing, with their mouth closed, breathing using their diaphragm. And back, I know sometimes with myofunctional therapy, it's, it's more so, and I understand, don't sleep on your side because it can cause pressures to the face. But we have to bear in mind, 50% of people with obstructive sleep apnea, their apneas can double when they lie on their back. Mm -hmm. Now, I know elevating the bed can help to reduce the likelihood of gravity calling the, causing you know, the airways to, to collapse. But I fly a lot. And flying is a great way to see when people have breathing, especially on long haul flights. Now you've got guys that are sitting relatively upright and you'll hear them snoring, but oh, yeah. you'll also hear them stopping breathing. Yeah. And they are, they are as upright. I don't fly first class, so I'm not lying back. These are <laughs> fairly upright and I'm hearing people that they are stopping breathing. So I'm always curious about, you know, if we were to switch a lot of these people over from their back onto their sides and yes, some people have to sleep on their back. I get that. I understand it. So, yeah. So when people go and do the sleep study, um, they wear the tape. And I know, but the technicians, by the way, are fine about it. The patient explains that I have to wear the tape. This is what I normally do during my own sleep. And I want them to follow the same procedures. But we have seen AHI indexes really drop dramatically. I've seen in one case an AHI dropping from 50 events per hour down to, I think it was eight or nine, but it was coming from really severe obstructive sleep apnea down to mild obstructive sleep apnea and a phenomenal difference. We had one, one, one man wrote a book on it. It's called um, Breathless Sleep no, no More. He's an Australian lawyer. And you can imagine a lawyer, they really need to have, you know, their, their mental faculties about them because there's concentration involved. Yeah. So sleep apnea is going to be a problem. But he, he got his AHI index, he did Buteco, and then he did a post follow-up and he ended up writing a book about it, but he published his sleep studies inside in the book. And uh, you, you know, you can see it. But yeah, we do need more research. We're definitely falling short, but I would love to see more research because I think there's a very valid treatment here. And also dentists are in such a wonderful position to be talking about sleep yeah. because they are looking into the mouths they're seeing if there's a scalloped tongue. They know they have a great experience of, you know, monitoring the, the mouth, the space as well, and airway size. 
Yeah, and I'm very fortunate because I work with a very airway-centric dentist, as I call it. Yes. And, um, it's it's amazing because we get to share a lot of cases together and i that's where i always joke on the podcast that dentists are our future pediatricians they are going to be the the front yes. line i could give us 10 totally. years and they're going to be the primary practitioners and if they're not they should be because yes. you know a lot all illness starts in the mouth so it yeah. all it yes. all starts right here um, i totally agree yeah so um we had one last question from a listener who had wanted to know your opinion on using buteco with um patients with epilepsy and do you continue yes. with your protocol for high-risk patients which is what she's been doing um and is there anything important to consider for that patient population in yeah to epilepsy it's funny my new book i'm putting a chapter in on epilepsy and i'm also putting a chapter in on type 1 diabetes we've seen results with both groups um, I can't say that chronic hyperventilation and breathing pattern disorders is going to help everybody with epilepsy. There may be some subsets. I think there are some subsets in epilepsy that they are very much affected by chronic hyperventilation. And we do have to get them out closed. Now, I don't do the strong breath holds with people with epilepsy, but I do gentle, slow breathing from a biochemistry, biomechanical, and a cadence point of view. I also get them to wear the tape, but where I was very cautious about wearing the tape across the lips, we get them to use myo tape because again, the mouth isn't covered. Mm -hmm. So what I would say is anybody with epilepsy, but I can't, if somebody comes into me with epilepsy, I cannot guarantee that I would help to reduce their seizures. But at the same time, I feel it's really important to get them breathing through the nose to slow down their breathing because it will help them anyway with anxiety yeah. and anxiety can be a precursor you know anxiety and stress mm -hmm. can aggravate conditions and uh also for sleep and you know we have one woman her name is jenny snook and she read my book i don't know a few years ago i have a book called anxiety free and she read this and she started getting her mouth closed and her epilepsy it it was the best that she'd had in her life she was getting a seizure before that one a month, one per month, um, a seizure, but it was happening during her sleep. And by breathing through the nose, it made a significant impact. So I think there's more to this. And yeah, there's some people have written about the connection between breathing and epilepsy. Robert Fried was one. Um, and there are some papers there, again, falling short. Nasal breathing doesn't get all that much research, but I would say, you know, absolutely try it for epilepsy. Yeah, yeah, I can think of a patient um, that I worked with very closely, actually, who every time she would wake up in the middle of the night, or she would fall, fall asleep on the school bus coming home, um, she would go into, she would have a seizure. And, yeah. you know, and it was, I, I, I have to think back now, because this was pre myo days for me when I was working with this patient. Um, yeah. But and so I was not really looking at her sleep or her airway or telling mom to do that. And on top of that, they're military, which always complicates things too, in getting sure. proper care. But um, yeah, I mean, the, just thinking about this child now, that with what you were sharing, mom did everything in her power to make sure this child would not fall asleep without yeah actually needing to be asleep unless it was nighttime and she was supposed to be sleeping because they always had to have the rescue medications 
right there next to her because this is how severe this child was. And so a school bus ride that was more than 15 minutes was not appropriate because she'd fall asleep and and have a seizure. And, you know, and so it's so interesting, just the brain connection to, you know, it's just, it's it's all very fascinating. So thank you for that. That's, that's very helpful. And you've answered a lot of questions that a lot of our listeners had. So I appreciate that too. Um, is there anything else that we didn't cover that you want to share? I mean, I know I have one last question, which is kind of like the big elephant in the room based on what's going on out in the universe right now. <laughs> um, coronavirus. Is there anything that you would want to share related to coronavirus? Obviously, nasal breathing is the topic of this podcast, and I've seen yes. a ton of social media posts and just articles and things on how we need to be nasal breathing, especially right now, given what's going on and how easy it is to contract this virus. Um, Are there any tips or thoughts on that topic? Yep. Um, I put a video together on COVID-19. I put a video about four days ago and I just checked it on Oxygen Advantage YouTube channel. It had 22,000 views in four days. Oh, wow. But I I mentioned a number of points on it. Number one is breathlessness is a symptom of Mm COVID-19. And you can assess your breathlessness by measuring your breath hold time. So keep an eye on your breath hold time, measure your control pause. You, you'll find how to do the, the measurement on YouTube free. If you just put in bolt score, Patrick McKeown or control pause. Another thing, you can change your alveolar ventilation. In other words, the, the, the amount of oxygen that gets into the alveoli by simply breathing down to six breaths per minute. So what I would say to people, if they feel that, they're breathing fast and shallow. It's very inefficient in terms of oxygen uptake or oxygen transfer. Put your hands on your lower two ribs and just gently breathe in for a count of four seconds. Very, very slow. Don't hear it. And breathe out gently for a count of six. And that's the most efficient way in terms of increasing alveolar uptake. And I've used it with people with chronic heart failure. And I've seen their SpO2 come up from 91 to 96% just by changing their breathing pattern, slowing it down. Nitric oxide. If you Google clinical trials, USA, nitric oxide, COVID-19, you will see that there are clinical trials underway. Inhaled nitric oxide is a treatment for COVID-19. Nitric oxide is an antiviral. It's also in a study in 2005, looking at coronavirus SARS, that it inhibits the, rep, the replicate, replication cycle. Because the problem is that when, when the virus gets into a host, it replicates. And nitric oxide was shown in a laboratory to be able to inhibit the replication of SARS. Mm-hmm. Now, can I say that this is going to apply with, corona, with COVID-19? Of course I can't. I cannot say that. But I don't know. And nobody knows. But I'm really surprised that healthcare authorities are not talking about nose breathing not just from the point of view, like I was traveling up until very recently. I only got back from Los Angeles on the 17th of March. I was in airplanes. I was in crowded tube stations. I was in groups of people. I was doing everything wrong, but yet I didn't get the condition. And I remember I was in a tube. I was in a, um, a train in London and it was packed. It was during rush hour. And this is only about... I don't know, two, three weeks, three weeks ago. And I was in that train for about a half an hour. And I did two things throughout that train journey. I breathed through my nose, but I breathed so slowly. And I breathed as little air as possible. 
I did that because I didn't want to take any, or I didn't want to be taking much airborne particles into my, into my body. Mm-hmm. So I reduced what I was inhaling and I felt air hunger throughout. So I felt that I was not getting enough air, which by the way is fine because you know, carbon dioxide is increasing and your blood vessels are opening up, etc. But also if you breathe really slowly, you're harnessing a greater concentration of nitric oxide mm-hmm. and the antiviral effects. Now, humming, if you hum, so you hum on the exhalation, a prolonged exhalation humming, nitric oxide is dumped from the paranasal sinuses into the nasal cavity. So you increase the nitric oxide in the nasal cavity from between seven to 20 fold by humming. But make sure at the end of the hum that you breathe in through your nose so you're carrying that nitric oxide into your lungs. So I think... Also, people who are infected should be nose breathing because if I breathe out through the mouth, I'm breathing out a lot of water vapor there. There's a lot of water particles being emitted on my exhaled breath from the mouth. Yeah. There's 42% greater water loss breathing out through the mouth. And if you think of how this is transmitted, airborne, it's not just about sneezing and coughing that's transmitting water particles, but breathing is doing it as well. And mouth breathing is going to transmit more. So if, if a family member is, is infected, just make sure that the family member is breathing through the nose because your nose is going to trap that moisture on the exhale breath. And the other thing is, if I go into supermarkets and there's some guy, now we're, we're in lockdown, by the way, we can't move for two weeks. Mm-hmm. So I'm literally in the middle of nowhere here on, on the west coast of Ireland. So to give you an example, that's, this is where I'm looking out onto... Um, I don't know if you can see that. Uh, yeah, yeah. So you see that I'm I'm in total isolation. Yeah. Every way. You guys can't even go to the grocery store or are you allowed to go get food? We are. Yeah, we're allowed to go to the grocery store, but the police as well are having checkpoints too. So yeah, now, we're, on lo- we're on lockdown too. We have a stay in place order in Maryland. It's, a, it's amazing. Yeah. It's yeah. so <laughs> strange times. Oh, yeah. But, you know, when I go to the grocery store, there's going to be somebody in the aisle but what I'm going to do is I breathe in, breathe out, and I hold my breath. And I walk past holding my breath. Mm. So I'm, I'm really conscious. I think it's so important. Yes, washing our hands is great. Social distancing is great. But how about taking less air into the body? How about harnessing our, no, our own antiviral mechanism? And that's going to be based on nasal nitric oxide. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and are you wearing a mask when you go to the grocery store, or you're just no, no, I don't wear a mask to be honest with you. No, I haven't gone that far. My wife is going down wearing a mask, and she wears the gloves. Um, but no, I put in put in my own breathing techniques into practice there. That's yeah. great. Well, we will make sure we share this with everybody, and uh, we'll share the video that you also mentioned that you posted on your website. Um, so I yep. think that people are you know, uh, working from a place of fear right now, which obviously doesn't help our breathing either. So if we can totally. get a little bit more yes. educated on nasal breathing and what we can do to help, maybe that'll also keep anxiety down. Yes, and, yes, know, yeah, yeah. I'll send you on a relaxation as well that people, we, we give it out to people with insomnia and, you know, the feedback has been good in it. So, so your, your listeners might, might like to, to play it as well. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Well, thank you, Patrick. Is there anything else we haven't covered today that you want to share? No, I think it's, I think we've covered quite a lot in terms of the connection, you know, and it's, it's always a great opportunity to talk about the potential of restoring nasal breathing, both in adults and in children. 
um, that we have to we have to give the nose credence to that it performs really important functions in the human body. And do you know it's happening, Holly? It's really, really happening. I think there's an awareness of breathing that's after changing in the last four years, and I'm delighted to see it. And I'm delighted. I think that eventually, um, it it is going to may it will be part and making a big impact on people. I agree, I, and I always tell my patients, you know, if they if they're not paying attention, and this goes back to the earlier question of you know how do you really drive this home to parents? I tell them, look, we have two big functions in life: we need to breathe and we need to be able to eat. And yes. I said, look, you, you don't have to eat by mouth. We can eat other ways, but you can also be on a ventilator. However, if you can't breathe and you're not getting ventilated, you're not a ventilator, you're dead, right? Yes. You can't breathe, yes. you're dead. So our first yeah. and foremost function in life is breathing. And I think yeah. sometimes just that, you know, really, that's how I drive it home to some of my parents and they kind of go, oh yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. And so, you know, just getting very, uh, very simple in my explanation sometimes, but very, yeah. <laughs> a little bit morbid too in a sense, <laughs> really drives that point home. So this has been great though, because there's a lot of, you shared a lot of really great information. A lot of um, resources were mentioned. We'll do our best to collect them all, put them all in the show notes. We'll definitely mm -hmm. link to your website and myotape and all the videos um, and everything that you said you have on your website that you shared here. So thank you so much for all those amazing resources. I really appreciate your time. You're very welcome. Thanks very much, Ali. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you want to hear more of these Mayo Tots airway and feeding related episodes, be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash the untethered podcast. If you found value, others you know in this space will too. So be sure to share this episode on your social media platforms and join us over on Facebook, on my Facebook page at Hallie Balkan Biz, on Instagram at, at Hallie Balkan. And you can head over to the untetheredpodcast.com to grab a copy of the show notes um, where you can also subscribe to be kept up to date on the latest podcast episodes. 